How many of you have ever heard of Lawn Chair Larry? <laughs> ever heard of him? Well, back in 1982, 33-year-old Larry Walters was just an ordinary guy. But on one specific day, he became extraordinary. You see, Larry was a truck driver in North Hollywood who had no flight training, but one day he made up his mind that he was going to go on a solo flight to the Mojave Desert. And so lawn chair Larry, in his new lawn chair that he had bought at Sears for a little over a hundred bucks, he strapped 45 weather balloons with helium to that Sears lawn chair And he packed a few important items for his solo flight. Uh, he packed uh, a bunch of soda, a CB radio, an altimeter, a camera, a pellet gun to use. If he thought he was getting to too high of an altitude, he could shoot out a few of those balloons to bring him down to earth. And then finally, he added a parachute to his packing list just in case. Well, he straps the balloons to his chair. He puts the chair on top of his girlfriend's house, <laughs> and the, the tethers are cut. And off shoots Larry into the air above San Pedro. Well, after a few minutes, Larry radioed the ground and gave them a status report. He wasn't sailing smoothly toward the Mojave Desert like he had planned. Instead, he was sailing across Los Angeles Harbor toward Long Beach. And at 16,000 feet, Larry and his lawn chair drifted into the flight path of Long Beach Municipal Airport. Several pilots from two passing Delta and TWA airliners alerted the air traffic controllers nearby, saying they were seeing what appeared to be a man floating through the sky in a chair. Well, that possibly couldn't be, could it? Well, at three miles above the ground, Larry was getting cold, he was getting dizzy, so he began shooting out some of those balloons above him. And as he was descending toward the ground, he saw a large stretch of grass below him, and it was a golf course there in Long Beach, about 10 miles from where his flight had begun. And he hoped he would land on the green patch, but unfortunately, He got tangled up in some power lines. Well, he was eventually rescued. Power was cut to a large section of Long Beach in order to cut the power to those lines so he could be safely rescued and brought the rest of the way to the ground. He was able to extricate his chair from the power lines and some kids nearby, they had just found their new favorite hero, uh, Larry, lawn chair Larry. And so he actually gave them his lawn chair because they wanted it so badly. Well, he had some new adoring fans, but I've got to say the Long Beach Police Department and the FAA, uh, they weren't as big a fans of Larry as those neighborhood kids were. Uh, they decided to hit him with several fines, uh, adding up to several thousand dollars, and they slapped him with several misdemeanors. Lawn Chair Larry, I want to tell you this morning, had some things in common with the Apostle Paul. So think about that. The Apostle Paul and Lawn Chair Larry, both of them in their day, had many adoring fans because of what they were doing. But what brought them a lot of praise and accolades from those who liked what they were doing, at the same time put a big target on their back 
from those who didn't. Well, recently we've been reading in Ephesians chapter 19 how God did extraordinary miracles through the Apostle Paul. Remember, there in the city of Ephesus where he spent three years, the longest he had stayed at any city uh, of any uh, city he had visited and, and planted churches in. During that three years, he was during, doing these extraordinary miracles. Remember the handkerchiefs and the aprons that had rubbed up against him were taken to sick people and demon-possessed people, and the demons were driven out, and those sick people were made well. God was doing these remarkable things. And last week we saw that the seven sons of Sceva, these con men, saw what Paul was doing, and they decided to try to replicate it. They tried to pass off their knockoff exorcisms. They went around and they started saying, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you demons to come out of him. Of course, they charged the people that wanted the demons driven out. They were making some fast bucks out of this uh, enterprise of theirs, this knockoff exorcism business they had going on. They didn't believe in Jesus. They couldn't care less about Paul, but they were throwing their names around in order to make a fast buck. And we saw last week that backfired. You see, Satan was throwing a counterpunch. Jesus was working through Paul, and Satan didn't like that. He threw a counterpunch. As we've been going through this Life of Paul series, several times I've mentioned to you, whenever God throws a punch, Satan throws a counterpunch. And we've seen this throughout Paul's ministry. Just when things are really kicking into high gear, just when his ministry in a city is getting its feet underneath it, Satan throws a counterpunch. Oftentimes he's chased out of a city. Oftentimes he's persecuted in a more dire way. But Satan does it as well here in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is no exception. God does extraordinary miracles through Paul, and bam, Satan uses the seven sons of Sceva to try to take people's eyes off Jesus. Well, that didn't work too well, so God actually used that counterpunch to turn things on its ear. People turned to Jesus even more on the heels of the sons of Sceva doing their dirty work. So Satan got discouraged, right? We find Satan here in Ephesus packing his bags and turning around and going back home, right? Don't count on it. Just because his counterpunch didn't work, he gears up for a second counterpunch that's going to be a lot harsher and have much greater results. Or so he would think. That's where we pick up in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 21. We're going to look at Satan's second counterpunch in the city of Ephesus Today And this counterpunch is going to be orchestrated through a man named Demetrius. We're going to pick up in verse 21. It reads, After all that had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little while longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. 
And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger. Not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great Artemis, the goddess, will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and around the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Oh, may God bless us as we read and study his word today. According to verse 21, Paul was on his way out of Ephesus. His three-year ministry in that city was quickly drawing to a close. He had made plans to visit the churches he had planted in Greece, uh, there in the south in, in uh, Achaia, or Achaia it's sometimes pronounced, there in the north of Greece, uh, there in that area of, of Macedonia. He was going to go back through all of Greece and, and visit quickly those churches that he had planted. So he's wrapping up his ministry here in Ephesus. He just had a few more uh, details to take care of before leaving. And he was so close to leaving that he went ahead and sent a couple of his helpers ahead of him. Timothy and Erastus, we read in verse 22. And so as he's wrapping up these final details, we find that a curveball is thrown his way. I imagine that as his three years were coming to a close in in Ephesus, there was a good chance that Paul thought he'd finally gone to his city and stayed there for a lengthy amount of time, and the persecution against him had been minimal. It hadn't been nearly as severe as it had been in, in other cities. Remember what had happened in some of those other cities where Paul had planted churches In Pisidian and Antioch and in Thessalonica, Paul had been chased out of town. He had received death threats in the city of Iconium. He had been beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. He had been stoned to the point of unconsciousness and dragged out of the city of Lystra. So comparatively, Ephesus was a walk in the park. Yeah, some Jews slandered him and the knockoff exorcists were kind of annoying, uh, but that was small potatoes. That was a walk in the park compared to what Paul had grown accustomed to. But his walk in the park came to an abrupt end here in the second half of Acts chapter 19. Look at verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. At this time, the the term Christians wasn't used widely, and so it was common for people to refer to Christians as the way, uh, followers of the way that made sense because remember in G- in John chapter 14 verse 6 Jesus told his disciples I am the way to heaven and so followers of Christ were called followers of the way they were following the way to heaven Jesus Christ well according to verse 24 this disturbance began with a silversmith named Demetrius it says he made silver shrines of Artemis which brought in a boatload of money for him and his fellow craftsmen. Well, according to Greek legend, Artemis, who is also called Diana, was the daughter of Zeus and the twin sister of Apollo. Here is a depiction of what that statue most likely looked like inside that temple to Artemis uh, there in Ephesus. 
She was the goddess of wild animals. She was the goddess of vegetation and of chastity and of childbirth. Yes, she was a very busy goddess. And her specialty, it appears, was in the area of fertility. She was a fertility goddess because she's usually depicted with many breasts. Uh, if you count those in the middle, she's got about 18 breasts there. That's a lot of breasts. So she was looked at as a fertility goddess by both the Greeks and the Romans. The Temple of Artemis was the biggest tourist attraction by far in the city of Ephesus. Perched on a hilltop, the temple was an architectural masterpiece. Remember I mentioned to you last month that this temple to Artemis of the Ephesians, this temple to Diana, was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was an architectural masterpiece, and people would come from all over the world to behold this glorious temple to the goddess Artemis, to the goddess Diana, there in the city of Ephesus. So what were these silver shrines that Demetrius made? Well, they were either little silver models of the many-breasted goddess herself, or they were little silver models of the temple of Artemis. Uh, one or the other. Either someone uh, would grab one of these little shrines as a souvenir to take back home, just as a kind of a trinket. But more times than not, people would buy these shrines and take them home and maybe put them on their mantle or in a prominent place in their house, and they would worship the goddess Artemis. They would worship her image as an idol, or they would take that little model of the temple uh, that they had at their little shrine in their home, and they would worship her by looking at that little idol of the temple. And so many people would come and buy these shrines that Demetrius and his buddies made. Verse 25, Demetrius gathers together his fellow silversmiths along with other tradesmen who are making a buku bucks off of tourists and Diana worshipers. And Demetrius makes a grand speech in verses 25 through 27. He starts by pointing out the obvious. Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. Everyone in the room agreed, yeah, we make some good money with this business, this Artemis business that we're in. In verse 26, Demetrius begins making the case that Paul is their enemy. Notice what he says in verse 26. You see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Now, listen to how his accusation is worded in a few other English translations. Let's start with the New Century Version. It says it this way. But look at what this man Paul is doing. He has convinced and turned away many people in Ephesus and in almost all of Asia. He says the gods made by human hands are not real. Oh, can you believe it? Something made with human hands, not real. They're aghast at the thought. Look at how the message paraphrases Demetrius' words. Men, you know, you well know that we have a, a good thing going here, and you've seen how Paul has barged in and discredited what we're doing by telling people there's no such thing as a God made with hands. A lot of people are going along with him, not only here in Ephesus, but all through Asia province. And so that gives us a little bit more flavor 
on this argument that Demetrius is making. So what Demetrius does here in these verses is really sneaky, but brilliant. It's really quite brilliant. He gathers together those who have the most to lose financially if everyone in town converts to Christianity. And he begins by speaking the truth. Notice these three points that he makes, and each of these three statements are pretty much true. Number one, we all make a good living in the Artemis business. That's true, isn't it? There's nothing untrue about that. They're making bucks off of Artemis, all these little shrines and idols they're making. Second truth he speaks, Paul is convinced and led astray many people throughout Asia Minor. Now, he's got a negative spin on the truth by using that word led astray, but that's basically a true statement. Paul is leading many people to Christ, isn't he? Not just in Ephesus, but throughout that, throughout that province of Asia, because remember, he had established a beachhead of the gospel there in that capital city of Ephesus. The third truth he speaks, Paul says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Is that an untrue statement? No. Paul was saying that. <laughs> Man-made gods aren't gods. We worship the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Then in verse 27, though, Demetrius, in his brilliant sneakiness, makes a point. He gets to the reason why he called this emergency meeting of the Artemis tradesmen. Notice what he says in verse 27. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. What Demetrius does here is once again sneaky, but brilliant. He makes a hard shift from speaking the facts to fear-mongering. He makes a hard shift here. Now he's delving into the area of fear-mongering. In verse 27, he presents a worst-case scenario, a doomsday prediction that their livelihood and the Artemis temple and even Artemis herself are going to be discredited and wiped off the face of the earth all because of that mean, sneaky, terrible human being named Paul. He's fear-mongering. Demetrius presents this grand conspiracy theory within which Paul is the chief villain. Paul is the enemy. Paul is the criminal mastermind. Notice the first three words in verse 27. Demetrius riles up his cronies by saying, There is danger. For those of you older than me, danger, Will Robinson, danger. He says, there is danger, and they're on the edges of their seat. What kind of danger? What kind of danger? Tell me, what kind of danger? And then he lowers the boom. The danger is all related to Artemis is going to come crashing down because of Paul. I can imagine, I can imagine how Demetrius' speech went, especially in the final moments. Gentlemen, are you going to sit on the sidelines and let Paul rob you of your paycheck? And they all answer, no. Are you going to stand back and let Paul ruin our trade's good name? And they all answer back, 
no. Are you going to let Paul turn Diana's temple into a ghost town? In unison, they yell back, no. Are you going to allow Paul to make our goddess Diana a laughingstock throughout the world? No. Then go get him, boys. Go get him. At this point, they are riled up. They are piping mad, and they're loaded for bear. Look at what happens beginning in verse 28. Here in Acts chapter 19. What, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Well, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a, a defense before the people, but when they realized he was a Jew... They all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After this, he dismissed the assembly. Well, we don't know how quickly this mob formed, but it had to be pretty darn fast. Demetrius' fellow craftsmen took the, to the streets, and they started shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! As the crowd swelled, a few of Demetrius' buddies made a beeline for Paul's house. Where is that no-good rabble-rouser? We're going to get him. We're going to get him good. We're going to drag him to the mob. Well, they couldn't find Paul. So they do the next best thing. If they can't find the guy they're mad at, heck, just grab some other guy you're mad at. And so they grab two of his traveling companions, Gaius and Aristarchus. They drag them to the mob. The mob got too big to fit in the streets, so they all flooded into the amphitheater. Uh, historians and, and archaeologists tell us that theater held about 25,000 people. So this is a huge crowd. may not have been 25,000 big, but it was big. Probably thousands of people in this mob. So imagine this scene, thousands of Ephesians in the theater, as mad as a hornet, they're yelling, they're screaming, their faces are beat red, and they want heads to roll. The only trouble is, most of them don't even know why they're there. That's just a small little hiccup in Demetrius' plan. Look again at verse 32. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. This is so typical of how mobs work. 
It started out with one man riling up a small group of tradesmen by getting them to buy into a doomsday scenario and a conspiracy theory. Then that small group of agitators started fussing and carrying on, going through the streets and screaming, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Then curious onlookers asked, Why are you yelling about Artemis? And the tradesmen's answers were probably a little bit melodramatic. Paul is attacking Artemis! He's trying to destroy her! And the melodrama grows. Now, did anyone in the crowd actually stop to ask, Hey, Uh, Are you sure about that? That sounds a little bit fishy to me. I heard Paul, and I didn't hear him ripping on Artemis last week when I heard him. Does anyone stop to to think for a moment? This sounds like the facts might be a little mixed up. It sounds a little fishy. Let me first check the facts, and then I'll get back to you to see if I'm going to join your little band of yellers here. Well, no way. That's not how mobs work, right? Mobs don't do fact checks. Facts are irrelevant. Mobs are just fueled by raw emotion. couple cases in point. How about what happened on January 6th last year in 2021? Did that mob there at the U.S. Capitol check the facts before rushing into the Capitol building? Nope. How about what's happened over the past three months? As you know, in early May, a reporter leaked the U.S. Supreme Court decision deciding on Roe versus Wade whether or not to overturn that. The decision was leaked there in early May. In the past three months since that leak took place, there have been over 60 pro-life pregnancy centers vandalized across the U.S. Did groups like Jane's Revenge check the facts about the Supreme Court decision and what it really meant at a state level before tagging and, in some cases, even firebombing some of these pro-life clinics? No! They didn't stop to check the facts. They were just acting out of raw rage and pure emotion. Facts don't matter to mobs. I'm not sure that anyone has ever described a mob better than Ben Franklin. Listen to how our founding father, Ben Franklin, summarized mobs. A mob is a monster, heads enough, but no brains. Isn't that a great description? You take an aerial shot of a mob, you got plenty of heads, but very few brains. Hmm. Well, this mob in Ephesus grew so fast because people weren't thinking. They were just reacting. Accusations were flying, and honestly, most of the mob didn't even know why they were there. In verse 33, the Jews pushed Alexander to the front of the crowd. Presumably, those Jews wanted to uh, not have people turn on them as well in this mob. So evidently, they pushed Alexander forward and said, hey, tell everybody that we don't like Paul either. We kicked him out of the synagogue. We don't like him either. Tell him, tell him, Alexander. But he doesn't even get a word in edgewise. The mob shouts him down. Great is Artemis the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they they do this for two more hours. Well, when Paul caught wind of it, he did try to make his way into the amphitheater to talk to the crowd, but the other Christians wouldn't allow him to. Paul was willing to risk his life to tell people about Jesus because he was so much wanting people to get saved. They kept him at a safe distance. He didn't get to talk to the mob. The mob finally dispersed after the city clerk came forward, and I won't spend much time on this from verses 35 through 41, but if you ever are in a position where you're required to do crowd control, 
I encourage you to spend some time looking at how this city clerk masterfully handles this mob. He points out four uh, key things that help to calm them down. Number one, he points out Artemis's temple is still standing. Nothing has changed. If anyone's telling you the temple has been burned down, they're full of hooey. It hasn't happened. It hasn't happened. Number two, neither Paul nor his associates have ever robbed Artemis's temple or blasphemed her. If you heard someone in the crowd say that, that's a bunch of hooey as well. That didn't happen. He's not going around slandering our goddess. Number three, the courts are open. If Demetrius and his cronies have problems with Paul, they're perfectly capable of filing a lawsuit against him. They can do that. They're free citizens. They can sue him if they want to. And why are you in this mob yelling about it? He can go to the courts if he's got a problem with Paul. And then finally, number four, if the emperor back in Rome finds out what you guys are doing right now, he's going to send down the troops and you guys are in hot water because there's no reason for this mob. So you guys better just go back home. And the crowd disperses. He handles this mob masterfully. Well, I want to share with you three important lessons that we can pull from our study of this passage in Acts 19. Lesson number one, wherever the gospel is preached in power, it will be opposed by people who make money from superstition and sin. It's just a simple truth. That's a quote, actually, from Warren Wearsby, and I thought about saying it in my own words, but I thought he said it better. So that's a direct quote from Warren Wearsby. I thought it was so well said. Wherever the gospel's preached in power, power, there will be opposition when people are hit in the wallet. So think about it for a moment. Paul wasn't opposed by Demetrius and his buddies because he had picketed Diana's temple or because he had staged anti-Artemis rallies. All he did was teach the truth about Jesus every day and encourage other Christians to do the same. And for that, he was vehemently attacked. Why? Why was he vehemently attacked? Well, because of money. Because of money. It's as simple as that. Cold, hard cash. That's why Demetrius was upset. He wasn't that ticked off about defaming Diana or somehow profaning the temple. That was secondary. His number one concern was his paycheck. It hit him in the wallet, and he didn't like it one bit. People really haven't changed much over the last 2,000 years, have they? You can count on it. Most people will tolerate your Christianity as long as it doesn't hit them in the wallet. Most people will tolerate your Christianity as long as it doesn't affect their paycheck. But as soon as it does, as soon as it affects their paycheck, as soon as they feel hit in the wallet... They will begin to turn on your wonderful Christian faith because ultimately most people in this world are not willing to choose principle over income. Lesson number two. Most mobs are all brawn and no brain. So when everyone around you is losing their heads, keep yours. Stop, think, and pray. Say those words with me. Stop, think, and pray. Say that to yourself. Stop, think, and pray. That is so important for those of us who follow Christ. 
Over the past two years, far too many Christians have gotten caught up in political mobs. Instead of thinking, we've been reacting. Instead of believing and proclaiming the truth of the gospel, we've been believing and proclaiming conspiracy theories. Instead of praying, we've been criticizing and slandering. And the church in America is paying a high price for it. Across our nation, millions of people want nothing to do with the church. They want nothing to do with Christianity because they have absolutely no desire to be part of a Christian mob that they've witnessed over the past couple years. It seems clear to me that the public's perception of Christians is at its lowest point in U.S. history. Some damage control is in order. We need to stop taking our eyes off Jesus and get back to doing what he called us to do in the first place. To tell people about Jesus and love them into the kingdom. We need to stop pouring so much time and effort into trying to convert people to our favorite political party. We need to convert them to Christianity. We need to convert them to Christ. That's the smartest thing that we can do. And then finally, lesson number three. The stuff mobs prioritize is temporary and will one day be destroyed, but the stuff Christ prioritizes is permanent and will one day be richly rewarded. That's well said. History tells us, that a little over 200 years after the mob in Ephesus shouted themselves hoarse, in 268 A.D., Goth raiders set the temple of Artemis on fire and destroyed it. And it has never been rebuilt. Why? Because like everything else in this world, it is temporary and will one day burn. I liked how the German theologian Ernst Hanschen summarized it. He said this, In final analysis, the only thing heathenism can do against Paul is to shout itself hoarse. What did that mob accomplish by the end of the day? Well, they had sore throats. They were tired and sweaty. They were embarrassed because they had a a beating down by the, the city clerk. What productive thing came out of it? Absolutely nothing. Such is the case when we devote our lives to things that are temporary and won't last. You probably remember over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul tells us that on the day of judgment, our actions here on earth will be fed through the flames of testing. And everything we did that was sinful or selfish will be burned up in those flames. Only what we did for Jesus and for His glory will survive those flames of testing. Diana worship has been wiped from the face of the earth, but the worship of Jesus Christ lives on. Amen? Because He is the eternal God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you want to go see the temple to Artemis, it's a pile of rubble today. The only ones that go to the temple of the great Artemis of the Ephesians today are tourists, or archaeologists, or historians. Those are the only ones. No one's going there to worship Diana because she has already died out, as will every other thing that is not for the glory of God. Well, if you really think about it, we as Christians invest a lot of our time and talents and treasures in all sorts of things 
that are temporary. We get on soapboxes and squawk about many things that won't amount to a hill of beans in heaven. We get pulled by shallow mobs just like the next guy. But with only 24 hours in the day and only a a few short years to do whatever it is we're going to do here on earth, do we really have time to waste on temporary things? Jesus would say, no, you don't. No, you don't. Jesus would say, invest your life in what really matters most in eternity. Make Jesus' priorities your priorities. Amen? Invest in what really matters in eternity. Make His priorities your priorities. One final thought. Sometimes you and I need to be more like lawn chair Larry. (laughs) Bear with me for just a moment on this point. We need to be more like him. Despite what everyone else around us is doing, sometimes we just need to go for it, right? We just need to go for it. While people around you are running around fussing and yelling about the president or about gas prices or about inflation or about whatever, keep calm. Keep doing what Jesus has told you to do. Trust him no matter how crazy things get. Love him with all your heart. And obey His Word, especially the part where He tells you to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those around you. When all hell breaks loose, give them heaven. Give them heaven. Give them Jesus. More than anything else, people don't need a new president or lower gas prices or less inflation. More than anything else, people around us need Jesus Christ. And you have him. So give them what they most need. Give them Jesus. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, thanking you for once again opening our eyes and our minds and our hearts to the truth in your word. Father, we're sorry for the many times we've chased on the heels of those in a mob ranting or raving about this, that, or the other. Forgive us, God. Forgive us, Lord, for jumping on the wrong wrong bandwagon. Forgive us, O oh God, for buying into things without first stopping and thinking and researching before acting. Forgive us, Lord, for not praying before reacting. Lord Jesus, we need to make changes in the days to come. And we can't fully make those unless you help us. So, Lord, would you help us to stand up for what is right and good, regardless of what those around us are doing? May we, Lord, continue with the 24 hours we have in each day and the remaining days we have here on this earth. May we prioritize what you prioritize, pointing people to Jesus Christ continuing that heavenly invasion that you began 2,000 years ago, penetrating the gates of hell with the good news of Jesus Christ, bringing people into the, the kingdom of heaven by sharing with them the good news of Christ and leading them to salvation. Would you help us, Lord, to continue your heavenly invasion? And, Lord, there might be other things that are important, but not as important as that. So help us, Lord to do the most important things for the glory of God and the advancement of your kingdom. And when our lives are passed through the flames of testing, I pray that so much would come out on the other end 
because, Lord, we did the most important things that you called us to do before you called us home. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, that's another great passage of Scripture. I hope you were blessed by it as I was blessed by it this week as I prepared to share it with you. God's Word is so good. Please continue to stay in your Word. Don't just wait until next Sunday to study His Word. You make sure you're in it yourself. If you don't have a copy of God's Word in an easy-to-understand English translation, please just let us know. I'd love to get you a free Bible. I just have one rule when I give out a free Bible, and that rule is you got to read it. you got to read it. Let us know if you'd like a copy of the Bible. In fact, someone donated some brand-new study Bibles to us as well. I'd love to get you one of those if that will be a blessing to you and your family. May God bless you as you walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ this week, as you love him, as you trust him, as you serve him with all your heart. Let's take a stand for what really matters. Let's prioritize what Jesus Christ prioritizes, and let's share that good news of Christ with those around us so they can enter his kingdom as well. God bless you this week. We'll see you next time.